Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. You want to order something? Yeah, sure. Um, Hi. So I'm going to have that oatmeal. I'm Ryan Lizza. This is Playbook Deep Dive. It's Thursday morning, and I'm at the Four Seasons in Georgetown, having breakfast with Steve Clemens. Steve's day job is writing his opinions as editor-at-large for The Hill. But the reason I'm here eating pancakes with Steve, he's having oatmeal with a side of bacon, yeah, and I'll have maybe a little bacon on the side. Sorry, folks. And I'm going to have uh, <laughs> some, some berries as well. Is that this guy knows more than maybe anyone else about what's going on inside of perhaps the most important person in Washington right now, Senator Joe Manchin. In fact, Steve just had dinner with him last night. We'll see. Yeah, we <laughs> will know, see. You, you yeah. tell me what red yeah. lines you can't cross. Yeah. No, I'm I will. I'll, I'll say, gonna, hey, I'm not going to go there. Push you on no, I know you're going to push me, and I know what's in it. Yeah. Um, I heard that last night you had an interesting dinner. Yeah. <laughs> so who did you have dinner with last night, Steve? The first dinner or the second dinner? <laughs> well, I don't know. Let's, let, let, so, let, um, let's hear it. No, I mean, like, yeah, so I got to be careful. But I had dinner with Joe Manchin yeah. and with uh, Mandy Weingarten um, at, at, at Cafe Milano. This is on the eve of when Joe Biden is going up to the Senate to speak at the caucus lunch and basically try and pressure Manchin and Kirsten Cinema to change their views on the filibuster and support voting rights. Right. You're having dinner with Joe Manchin on the eve of one of the most important days of his Senate career. Yeah, so I can talk about what I think the players are doing. I'd rather not talk just about the <laughs> conversation at the dinner. And I just want to be honest with people is sometimes it's not a function of corruption or special interests. It's sometimes just a function of you know, lack of imagination or people are, are driven by inertia. So I kind of see a role that fits with my role as an opinion journalist. So I'm not a reporting journalist, right? So there's a different, big difference is somebody who has views and attitudes, but I try to be responsible and transparent about it so it's a in, response, in responsible ways, is that I also see my role as one of, of opening the aperture of different people who are in conflict or who are not there. Opening the aperture so they can see possibilities they might not have otherwise thought they had. And I look at that as a legitimate and actually a needed part of my role in Washington, right? I think the point is that Joe Manchin, I knew, believed that SR1 was too packed with things that were unrelated to the openness or the constraints on voting, and also that it was packed with issues that were more about social reform than they were about dealing with the voting questions, and he was dead, dead set against SR1. Yeah. What he was for was the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. But anyone that looks at the John Lewis Voting Rights Act 
which is commendable and important, knows it does not go far enough to address many of the problems in voting that we had seen recently, you know, particularly with voter suppression and, you know, various kinds of things. And I think that his take was we needed to modify this. And so, you know, I humbly suggested, well, what you're really doing is talking about John Lewis Plus. And Randy suggested talking to Stacey Abrams. And he, in, in a Joe Manchin way, because he's tried to be very chivalrous, very magnanimous, very, what, yeah, sure, sure, we'll do that. But there was a long time before that call with Stacey actually happened. And then they had multiple calls. And then he and Stacey really worked on putting together a voting rights outline of things that laid out some things like voter ID that, that were uncomfortable for the Democrats, but were, were potential pathways for Republican support. But they kind of cobbled something together. And then Barack Obama and other people came along and applauded it. Even even Joe Biden says I applauded. So they came up with something. It's the now, bill that they're yeah. now, what I learned, voting on this week. Is what I learned here. last night, yeah. what I learned recently is something I did not know. And it's because I don't know everything about Joe Manchin. I don't know everything about what's going on. Is that the bill that the Freedom to Vote Act which a lot of people had in shorthand thought was sort of Joe Manchin, Stacey Abrams. Joe Manchin believes that it's not, that it's not, they didn't write the bill, doesn't have the language, it still has a lot of stuff in it he doesn't like, and that the rules committee under Senator Klobuchar had put together something that is no longer his bill. I did not know that. Huh. So. So the Freedom to Vote Act that he's. That we thought was him, his name is not on it. He's not a sponsor. So I think the big issue is that progressives like Randy Weingarten and others, I want to put words in her mouth, um, see that they believe democracy is on the line, that um, the Republicans, when they come back, which they likely are, are, are to do in the next election in the House, um, will do, they believe they will do anything to win and to keep winning or whatever. And so that this moment is really important to get the infrastructure right so that the game can remain fair and that people can continue to have the right to vote and are going to do this. And they look at this as a really vital moment. And that what had to happen, you know, even if Joe Manchin was not going to agree to a carve out on the filibuster, is that they had to get this legislation on the floor to have it publicly debated and vetted so that all sides could be seen about where they were trying to uh, uh, constrain or allow by way of a high quality. And it, and it gave... Joe, in my book, it gives Joe Manchin an opportunity to critique the Freedom to Vote Act. I don't know whether he will or not. This is all you know, real time happening right now. And so I don't know what he will do on it. But I was um, surprised to learn that after all of the effort and all of the applause of what he and, and Stacey Abrams had done together, that that so-called bill is not the bill that's on the floor. So that was new to me, right? That's a big, big deal because it gives Manchin a way out of supporting this if he doesn't want to support it, right? So I think there's a, a dimension there that I think hasn't been reported. Very interesting. Um, and I think then the other side of it is they want to get it out there. But then as we all know, with what is now happening on the floor is that Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer have agreed in this you know, communication between houses to substitute um, the Freedom to Vote Act in a piece of legislation on the Voting Rights Act, the Lewis Voting Rights Act to allow discussion of this bill, but then to go to vote and end debate, they, they are back in the moment of needing 60 votes. So this is, this is you know, where people fish or cut bait, so to speak. And I, I don't know where Senator Manchin will go, but I do know that the progressive community is hopeful that he will see that um, folks are out there. I think the other dimension out there that, that 
again, not putting Senator Manchin in there, he's been public about it, but his frustration is he said, you know, the electoral certification, the electoral college certification process needs to be reformed. Even Mitch McConnell has said that, and that others that you can't allow a House member and a Senate member to derail millions of votes and invalidate or paralyze those votes from their states. And so there, there is, he is frustrated that we're not elevating and bringing forward those non-controversial or less controversial opportunities for bipartisan securing of of this sacred uh, vote process so that we do not have a repeat of January 6th ever again. So he's frustrated with the leadership that isn't allowing those moments to happen and putting those things first and then bringing it on. So I just want to be honest that, you know, I, I want to lay out, I don't want to speak for him, I don't want to speak for Randy, but I think that's where the tension is and maybe some of that got discussed last night. How does he feel about the pressure campaign this week um, that's really directed at him? I mean, Joe Biden, went to Georgia. He thinks it's dangerous. He thinks it's dangerous. I mean, I think he feels How there's so? an irresponsibility. I think he said it publicly that his frustration with what the White House saw was a positive comment about delaying the Build Back Better bill and saying we're negotiating with Senator Manchin, Senator Manchin, Senator Manchin, puts a target on his and his family's back. And that the personal harassment and whatnot, that, that if you're a progressive out there, you say, oh, you know, have tougher skin, have, you know, don't have such thin skin, you know, kind of, you know, deal with it. But they see, let, let, Manchin sees this as dangerous. And he said it publicly. You know? Let's unpack this for a yeah. second, because this is really important. And this is something you really were in the middle of and, and, and have written about and have a lot of insight into. What you're talking about here is the run up to the White House losing Manchin on the Build Back Better negotiations. This happened on a Thursday in December. And you were really in the middle of this talking to White House people, talking to Manchin people. Um, just describe for us what, from your perspective, what happened um, that day when maybe the most, could end up being the most consequential day of Joe Biden's presidency yeah. if Manchin never comes back to the, the table. Look, I'll but tell my day, I mean, I feel like I'm in the middle the of a The day Biden living, lost Manchin. Yeah, I feel like if I were going to stage this as, a, as an event for the Hill, it would be very Faulkner-esque that whoever you talk to has a different view of what happened and transpired. So the important piece of it is that the Thursday before the Thursday that blew up, um, I knew Senator Manchin was already communicating to the White House that this just wasn't going to get done, that he just wasn't on board, that it really needed to be delayed that the in that the combination of omicron the russians on the ukrainian border and the inflation rate of 6.8 percent now now seven percent today um was represented three big issues that that we had to be careful of not pouring fuel on a fire right so and and he worried that you needed to communicate to the public that you weren't just going to be reckless and and just posturing you had to actually look at what was happening in the terrain and he had had discussions where the, where the White House was saying, um, the White House said to him that Thursday or Wednesday, well, we really got to push ahead. This is before Christmas. We really got to push ahead. We got to get it done. Got to get it done. And Senator Manchin may have said, well, go ahead then. Let's see what happens. So he clearly wasn't on board. That couldn't, you know, he was not going to vote. It was his communication. He was not going to be it. So you get to the following Tuesday. So he and... Um, President Biden uh, speak, they, he's at White House, they talk through these different dimensions. And Biden 
says to him, I know we need to press this into the new year. No problem. We'll put this in the new year. We'll, we'll begin discussing this again in January, bring it together, work out some of these problems, et cetera. And, and they had a kind of code where they were not going to personalize it around each other. Joe Manchin, while he's been very generous in letting me know what was going on, I have an understanding that I may not use any of the names that, that I know involved. I can't, I, I, it, would, it would be wrong uh, for me to become a way that he violated his covenants with the White House. And so, likewise, he thought they had a code that they had to live to. Now, I got to tell you, so I can't, there are things I can't tell you that I, that I know about players that I know that... that Give that, us an example of one of the things you can't tell us. <laughs> <laughs> Who said something? Anyway, the point is, he was living by a code that he thought there. And a code on their, their responsibility with this social contract, through this tough time, discussing Build Back Better, getting there, getting in January is... They're not going to slime him. He's not going to slime them. So the deal that they had was there was supposed to be an announcement from the White House on that Wednesday that this was going to be kicked into the new year. It was going to be, you know, non-controversial, just not enough time to get it done. Got to, still got to work out some of the kinks, blah, blah, blah. No announcement comes on Wednesday. What does happen on Wednesday is that Chuck Schumer comes out, makes a statement. We have to get this thing done. Now, either that is a moment where Chuck Schumer had not been informed about the Manchin-Biden agreement, or he had been informed and he just decided to kick it in the teeth and do it anyway. I don't know the answer to that. All I know is that Wednesday, Schumer ratcheted the pressure up a lot to create the tension of this had to be done by Christmas. Whereas Manchin saying, I talked to the president the day before and I knew what was going to happen. But that, that statement was supposed to come from the White House. You, ha you would assume they would have communicated with Schumer. Thursday, 4.30 in the afternoon. The White House graciously shares with them a presidential statement draft that they were going to release. It's in the afternoon. Now, normally presidential statements, I, I think, are not normally shared like that. So on one hand, you can say, well, it's gracious. They ask us what we thought. Well, what they thought is they saw Joe Manchin's name mentioned several times. And Joe Manchin and the negotiations with Manchin mentioned. Now, you, can, you know, people who see the back end of it say, well, the White House was very generous. It was not you know, very negative. I think that, you know, the senior leadership in the White House has told me that they saw this as a positive statement that was protecting Manchin, not attacking Manchin. And I understand that that perspective is fair from their perspective. What was unfair is that Manchin's team communicated to the White House, we're not comfortable with this. Will you either please list both senators or more senators, you know, Christian Cinema and other senators, or list no senators and just talk about the Senate generically, but don't just put my name. That was a specific ask. And then the White House communicated from the, the communications of which I'm aware. They said, no, we're going to proceed with this statement. And the, the Manchin team communicated the senator is not on board with that. The senator is not on board with that. From the White House side, to be honest, the White House believed that Manchin had somehow signed off on this statement. How did they get that impression? I have no idea. Because I've seen <clears throat> some of the communications like and emails I saw, going back and forth? Yeah, and then I saw a, a, a communication on Thursday night after this had gone out in which Joe Manchin communicated to senior White House officials that negotiations were over. He personally communicated that? Yes. In writing? Yes. So, so that like Manchin to Ron? To a senior official. But, but Ron was aware. So this press release goes out and mentions Manchin. As you point out, if you look at the press release, it's like, what's the big deal? It just says this is all going to happen next year. It's very respectful to Manchin. But what you're saying is... The process it was, blew it up. 
don't ask a senator for what they thought when their name's involved, and he gives you kind of a polite way to defer it. What I think he felt is that he and Biden were closely aligned on Tuesday. And as I wrote in my piece, Biden is a brilliant negotiator, takes the personal out. He says, where are your interests overlap? Here are underlap. Let's make it work. The Biden doctrine was an article I wrote for The Atlantic was less of a template for had decisions and more of how Joe Biden seduces other foreign leaders in opposition and understanding where their interests are, his interests are, how you kind of move them, how you massage them, how do you use your grandkids as chess pieces, et cetera, et cetera, to kind of move this along. And and Joe Biden is brilliant at that. And and so when I was kind of looking at how he deals with Erdogan or Xi Jinping or, you know, any of these foreign leaders, you know, Maliki in the old days in Iraq. And so, you know, in my mind, not to say that Joe Joe Manchin is a rival like that, but Joe Biden <laughs> should be easy or Joe Manchin should be easier compared to any of those leaders. And that something is different between the way Joe Biden's normal um, template of seducing and bringing and getting to a win came undone between Tuesday and Thursday. And the, and the difference that Joe Manchin, I believe, feels is that the code that they had not to personalize this, not to swing at each other, not to kind of say, oh, Steve Rochetti did this or Ron Klain did this or Louisa Terrell did this. They, he felt that got violated. That deal got violated in that, in that statement, that they wanted no senators or two senators listed not just Manchin. But then the question comes up where I also happen to know that Joe Biden was really pissed. Personally. Yeah. And that Joe Biden- About the press release? My sense is from talking to people in the White House is that Joe Biden either didn't understand the severity of Joe Manchin's note on Thursday night and that this tussle over the statement had never been communicated to Biden, or it was communicated to Biden and to senior leadership and, and that they discounted it and misread Joe Manchin. So one of those two things is true, and I don't know which of those is true. Slow down for a sec. So on Tuesday when he meets with uh, uh, Biden, I mean, Things seem to be going so well that Manchin even has a proposal. Yeah, for give him a proposal. One eight, one point eight trillion. They were totally on board with each other. Which is why, in hindsight, it was basically most of the Build Back Better bill without the child tax I mean, that mostly that. It's. A, I mean, it's. I a, even kept all the climate provisions. Most progressives would take that deal in a second now. Right. Jonathan Chait, who's usually not thrilled with their stuff in New York Magazine, wrote a piece saying they should have grabbed it right then. Yeah. Pass so, it immediately. I but agree I with think John. that, from their perspective, I think it's like, okay, Tuesday he's got this new deal. We're not fully on board with it, um, but things are going along. It's fine to kick this to the new year. Um, you know, they'll they'll get there. And there's sort of shock then on Sunday when Manchin does what, what he does. Did you have any insight into the run up to what he does on on, on Sunday and the sort of preparations for that? What I know, I believed myself, Steve Clemens, that he had blown things up. And I believed... In other words, when he said, he, he communicated and said, I'm done. Yeah, I knew... Well, what was the line? I, I, I knew on Thursday night that Manchin was volcanically angry at the... Did you talk to him that night? Yes, I did. And he, so, was, and he, and he was mad. Yeah, but the, the point is, without, without saying it, he was volcanically angry and he had felt targeted and very upset that the tenor 
of the encounter and exchange over Build Back Better had changed from Tuesday to Thursday. And remember, I said they didn't put out a release on Wednesday. He began to feel like something was not coming right. No, no announcement on Wednesday. No announcement on Thursday. Like they had, this was a done deal. That the, the tectonics had shifted and the strategy with him had shifted. And then the Schumer announcement on Wednesday. We're going to still do this. So, so the they're moving to like a pressure the, campaign, <clears throat> rather pressure campaign around a person. Oh, but we're going to now put this on hold because of a person, right? So that is the pressure cooker. Now, people can debate that, and I think it's a fair debate to say Joe Manchin should have been bigger than that or should have done whatever. You know, I, I see it a different way because I think he's a magnanimous person who thought he was living by the rules. And I actually believe at the end of the day that, it, that while there was a lot in that bill, let's be honest, that he is uncomfortable with, given where he is and what his views are, he was largely bored. So it was a disaster for the nation that this bill blew up over process. And I knew that he was going to be on the Sunday shows. I knew, and honestly, the White House knew. Yeah. It's all public. Yeah, no, there, there was, I mean, he had yes. planned to be on Fox News ages ago. It wasn't an instant thing. Yeah. That, that that plan to have him on Fox News had been negotiated ages ago, well before and you even were, knew that Brett Baird was at the White House were telling us, like, you probably want to watch Manchin on Sunday. Like, that'll tell no, us, that'll cool. give us some clues. I don't think they, they obviously didn't know, but. So then, then I'm in the White House on Saturday night for one of the White House open houses, and they're very cordial, very open. Nothing, you know, you know, secret or, you know, okay. So All I noticed was I met some, some senior officials that were there looking really relaxed, super relaxed. I mean, and they know, and my friend, they you, know that I have this un, unusual moment. I was going to ask you, what, so how does your relationship with Manchin affect their view of you? when he's the most important senator. I don't know that. All I can say is that the White House always treats me respectfully. I've never, ever had a moment of tension. And when I wrote that article, I never had any blowback from any do official. They, do they try and use you as a back channel to get to Manchin or to figure out what he's thinking, <clears throat> like I'm doing right now? They don't try and use me. The answer is really, because I don't want anybody in the White House thinking that they, they, they don't. That said, a long time ago, before the American Recovery Act would pass, and Joe Manchin, again, had differences of opinion. I was not going to sign off on certain parts of the American Recovery Act. And you kind of knew American Recovery Act was really important for this country. The boat was on the floor, yeah. and Manchin was the holdout, <clears throat> and Joe Biden had to get right. him on the phone so, to convince so him to So not to know where Manchin would go, but to come back to this social thing you keep talking about, is I could tell from a dinner I was having with, with the senator that he really had no relationship and didn't know Ron Klain. Hmm. And and um, that he knew Joe Biden well, but he did not know Ron Klain well. And the way that some of the questions about White House senior staff were being discussed were clear to me that Joe Manchin did not have um, an understanding. These, Ron Klain has been a friend of mine for a long time. I really respect Ron Klain. I have known Ron Klain for, for a long time. And I, I said to Joe, I said, look, I think it might not hurt you to actually meet and know Ron Klain. And he goes, you know, see if you accept that meeting. So I, I wrote to Ron and I said, I think the senator, well, no matter what, even if you guys don't share the same views on things, it might be good for you to know each other. And Ron Clay said, hey, let's let's do that meeting. So I planned it for the following Tuesday on the boat. Well, explain for, just for listeners that don't know, when you say the boat, what is the boat? The boat is Joe Manchin's home in Washington Harbor. Which is called? Almost Heaven. You know, it's a very modest but nice, comfortable houseboat home that eventually one day Joe Manchin will sail out of Washington and not have a <laughs> Maybe permanent thing. Maybe sooner rather than yeah. later. 
not off that. But anyway, so they had a very, very productive. I think they really got to know each other. I think after is it that, just the two of them or their wives? Just, and- uh, no, Monica was not there, and I believe that Gail was there just making meatballs or something like that. So, <laughs> so and then shortly after that, the deal on the American Recovery Act was achieved, and they got the deal. So that it was a meaty being, discussion on the ARP policy. Yeah, and just getting to know each other, yeah. which which was good. With Joe Manchin, you know, he met Jayapal. I mean, you know, he, I wouldn't say greatest fan, but, you know, knowing where people are in their heads and what motivates them is really, really important. And he always believes, is one of the things he says, he always believes in meeting people with whom he doesn't agree and sit down and talking to him. It's part of his, you know, some call it cordiality, but it's also somebody understanding, you know, you can find places on the fringe then, it's almost Biden-like, that you can then understand, okay, here is the area that interests converge and here are the areas that diverge, so let's focus on the interests that can converge. It's very like, much like Joe Biden. Yeah. And that's what they did. So the boat meeting ended up being very, very important. And I kind of moved things along. The spirit of that moment Can I somehow just, has been lost. Wait, just today, to pause. You know, so. When you're in the middle of something like that, um, being the guy behind the scenes who is getting <laughs> Ron Klain, uh, the, the chief of staff to the president, onto Joe Manchin's famous houseboat, um, when everyone in Washington knows that Manchin is going to be the most important senator and his vote will um, determine the course of Joe Biden's presidency. Do you ever stop to think like, wow, this is really fucking cool. Like I'm in the middle of this, you know, connecting these two people. I, I don't think like that. I think that it's not a question of cool. Do you ever think of the sense like of history that is going on? No, there? I feel like, well, I do in the aftermath because you don't know how it's going to go. I mean, it could be, it could have been a shitty meeting. Could have like, you know, they could have like really disliked each other. You know, I again, I, I, I and on the other end of the day, you know, um, we had a, uh, a mutual friend of ours ask Joe Manchin, you know, a question at a dinner where, you know, he asked this social stuff getting together doesn't necessarily erase very serious policy differences between people. Right. Right. That's the point and I was so, trying to make before. And I think that, that sometimes there are very serious policy differences with, between people that are real and they're hardened in many cases and have to be respected. You can find where you can bring them together. I sort of, again, to go back to what I said, I look at my role when I can be helpful of widening someone's aperture as a constructive thing. People think I have, in, I have no influence on Joe Manchin, zero. All I'm doing is, is I know his code is reasonableness, fairness, hear alternative views, think about it, think through these dimensions and whether it's on the filibuster voting rights act how do you get something on the table that's better you know he thinks there are real big problems like on the uh, the tax code and what donald trump did on the tax code he said why don't we do that instantly he said we may not get any republicans but this is a case he said we could try but but he says the democrats all agree let's fix that you know that could be something right now it brings the democrats back together and be for something that has a much greater impact on inequality in america is by affecting the tax code than what he sees as, you know, checks. And that was part of his people. proposal on that Tuesday to Biden. Right. But but the problem there, of course, is cinema yeah. is not in favor of that tax proposal. So as right, and you might say to, to, from from a Joe Manchin perspective, why doesn't the White House go work on her on that? You know, is Ron Klain welcome on the houseboat at this point in time? I can't ever speak for that, but I would I would think that Joe Manchin, the Joe Manchin that I know well. He's always interested in resets, always interested in clearing the air. He's also wants to have honesty about what happened. I think right now, the truth is, what I know is that there needs to be at this moment some time to let some of that, 
you know, anger dissipate, and the anger is mutual on both sides. It is. It's it's still raw on both sides. It's raw on both sides, and I think that— Manchin's angry at senior White House staff. They're angry at him. Yeah, and the president probably, too. President himself. And so I think, you know, you you have an Italian and an Irishman that are both pretty upset with each other. And so I think at the end of the day, the Italian and the Irishman have got to figure out, okay, how to have beers and bring their people along. I think that will happen, just knowing them. I know that Joe Manchin loves Joe Biden. I know Gail Manchin loves Joe Biden. They really love Joe Biden. I I am not the right person to litigate it. I've only seen the detail of one side of the equation. So I want to be you know, upfront and honest at the way I do know the White House has a different view and I want to respect that. Yeah. That said, you can't leave this historic moment and just leave it to staff misunderstandings. It's just insane. Well, that, but it's very yeah. clear that both principles in this have an understanding of what transpired in this process that is completely antithetically opposite of each other. And they're both Democrats. They're both in this. And I think they're both well-meaning. And I don't think either one is lying. And so in that situation, someone needs to be creative and say, how can we push reset in this? I have ideas on that, and I've communicated them. I want to keep them quiet, but I've communicated them because I think that there is an opportunity. Because I think at the end of the day, Joe Manchin and part of the DNA of that guy is I will always sit down with the person I don't agree with. I'll always sit down and give another choice. I think that you know Chuck Schumer and, and Joe Manchin, used to have a very buddy-buddy relationship, always talking. It got very, very tense. And I, I, I don't want to go into details, but I think they have pushed reset uh, recently, and, and that even though they're still on opposite sides of things, the, the, the tenor of their exchanges is going to become what more positive. The, and so I think that's a healthy thing for the country. What was the low, when did, what was the low point of that relationship, the Schumer-Manchin oh, relationship? I can't say specifically. Was it the December period there's also? Been a, there's been a big deterioration over yeah. this last year. Yeah. Just to slow down for a second, in the in the debate over who lost Joe Manchin, which if he's never if he never yes, yeah, thank you. If he never comes back to the negotiating table and no version of Build Back Better passes, um, is gonna be one of the most important episodes of Joe Biden's presidency. Right. Um, what you're saying there is the person that in in Manchin's mind lost him may have been the president who failed to call him in between Thursday and Sunday morning. Yeah, but I have a feeling that the president, I'm not going to say that about the president. I just don't know what the president knew. Yeah, right. I don't, I don't know what the president knew, and I don't know. But Manchin wanted him to call. Manchin would have taken the call from the president. Manchin would have said how pissed off he was yeah. at, at what they'd done with him. And yeah. that he was really, really upset, really upset about what they did. Um, I think you need to explain, as I meant to ask you this, you need to explain to listeners some of the context of why he was upset and what it meant to him to be mentioned in a press release. And it gets to some of what, you know, you and I have talked about previously and you've written about, and it's about Manchin being a sort of target of, you know, of, of protesters and actually fearing for his safety. Is that right? Well, I can't talk out of turn about some stuff, but let's just say that there have been threats there had been encounters and, and um, incidents in West Virginia around their homes. There have been things like this. Stuff that, that hasn't been, been publicized? Yes. And so there is a dimension there of, you know, of, of fear. We live in a time where the toxicity animates people to do crazy things. I mean, I, I, when I watched 
the exchange between Rand Paul and Tony Fauci um, the other day, and you saw Dr. Fauci vividly describing what happened with a guy who was going to come in and, you know, literally was, was so that we live in a time where that is a fear factor for people who are in the public, not only for themselves individually, but for their families. And Manchin has been worried about that for a while. That's why they had a code between them in part of, I'm not going to slime you. We're not going to slime each other. We're going to um, stay committed to what's good for the American public from our different perspectives and try and, you know, wind, wind these things down. Now, you can get to a policy critique where, where Manchin feels that the Build Back Better legislation, when they shaved it down from $3.5 trillion to $1.75, actually it was $1.5 originally and then bounced up to $1.75, was that they took very, very little out and they just they just did it with budget shenanigans uh, and sunsets. And, and that really upset Senator Manchin. Again, that's on public record and said, that's not the way to legislate. We have to make hard choices. It's not being for things and things. We have to be responsible about these things. And, you know, I want to give him credit. And I think we also give him credit. That's not a, that's not a stupid argument, right? That's oh, a, absolutely. You know, and people may- Especially when you're saying, yeah. we don't really want them to sunset. <laughs> we want them to right. be extended. Right, So, So I think there's, there's that. And, but I think at the time that the way we sh go short form on everything in the eyes of people who feel, particularly with like childcare or the various dimensions of social support, you know, and trying to get people back to work because of what's going home during this pandemic, that there are people that this is very raw and real for, that lives are ruined. We have people that are struggling to make it, yeah. people left behind. And, but in a lot of people's minds, it becomes, oh, Manchin's against poor people in his own state of West Virginia. Why isn't he doing more? Or he's doing it because of coal interests or this or that. And it's just too simple. But in that environment, you can do things to inflame it. And yeah. while many people would read the statement as innocuous that the president put out on the Thursday that mentioned his name three times in his mind, because he asked him not to do it, it was putting a target amount of it saying progress in this nation is being held up because of one guy. The argument on the other side of it, frankly, talking to people around mansion land is everybody knows his mansion. Like, so everybody knows it mansion. Now, everybody may and also just know it's to cinema. play devil's advocate. He sort of leaned into it at other yeah. moments. Yeah. Right. So I think the bigger thing is, you know, I asked myself, what if the White House had not asked him what he thought of that statement? Would we be in the situation we are now? I still think he'd be pissed, but not have done what he did. Because they wouldn't have I clearly violated his request. Right. But if I had been on the White House side, I would have not have doubled down on the targeting of Manchin and the violation of the deal they had there. Well, here we go. Because it made it much we worse. To, we need to, I was just going to ask you about that. Of course, he goes on Fox News Sunday. He says he's out. It's huge news. And the White House reaction is, uh, to borrow your, your uh, description of Manchin on Thursday, volcanic. Yeah. Volcano meets volcano. <laughs> <laughs> and they decide to essentially accuse Joe Manchin of lying. Yeah. Big mistake. Why? So t take us through that. Take us through your insights into into the reaction. Because Joe Manchin was on board with them and the plan they mutually had on Tuesday. But what's why, so someone has yeah. to ask the question, how did they go from Nirvana on Tuesday to disaster on Thursday? That's why I wrote the piece I did. Right. How does that happen? And it happened because of one of several explanations. One, they'd had a change in strategy. And the change in strategy, which Joe Manchin felt and feared, I think, was that they were now going to make it personally about him and let the hounds off on him, as opposed to the constructive, productive, non-personal way they were dealing it with Joe Biden and the White House team on Tuesday. 
So a change on strategy, and, and the hints of that change in strategy were no presidential statement on Wednesday, which they had promised, no presidential statement during the day on Schumer Thursday. Schumer ratcheting up the rhetoric. And Schumer ratcheting up things. So Got that it. sent signals to the Manchin team, something's up. Or bureaucracies get distracted. Who knows what yeah. was going on? Maybe North Korea was about to blow up or you know, Iran was targeting something. You have no idea what's going on behind the scenes in a White House, which is chasing lots of different things. And I always want to be um, deferential to the fact that there's so much I don't know about the internal side of it that people may not have just had their act together on Wednesday. Yeah. And they may have, and the people who were so frustrated and had to communicate to their base that they weren't going to get this done before Christmas after kept saying they were, they were, they were, they were. They thought there was a constructive and a nice way to realistically tell what was happening. They may have had a deal with cinema, which hasn't been made public. They may have known, you know, something with cinema that she's largely on board with what they had. And they said, okay, we're going to be honest and truthful and, you know, non-controversial yeah. and do this and let's be magnanimous and show them the thing, you know, the, the statement. Um, and may have been caught off guard when, when his office objected to it. And right. there's still some cognitive dissonance where the White House doesn't feel perhaps that he did tell them, that it, which, which I find bizarre. But, but you know, it was just I a think, hot text. Yeah. So, so there's that explanation, too, that it was just accidental, unintended bungling that became really important. My point is, as an observer, but then like they really you, go after him. Then they went after him. Then they really they, went after because him. Because they don't buy that they were doing anything wrong. They don't buy that anything that they did disrupted the contract between them and that the existing core contract between Joe Biden and and Manchin, which they hammered out in Delaware, that they were going to fill in the details, be honest about it, that that that, that ending things was a violation of that core deep understanding. That's the White House view. From what you understand, how did Manchin respond to the press release in Jen Psaki's name that was released on Sunday, essentially calling him a liar? Uh, I don't think he was too happy. <laughs> <laughs> well, on, if on Thursday he was volcanic, <laughs> what was he on Sunday when he saw Jen Psaki's press release? I think it confirmed his beliefs that this was a strategic decision by them to change the tempo and direction and the pattern of negotiations with him and to now make it bundle it up all personally hmm. and to get back that has to be unwound all right so let's talk about that yeah. you've got some ideas about how it can be unwound <sighs> with time the problem is it hasn't gotten better and so i think both sides have gone through a difficult journey together and they're never going to be able to come to terms with each other of, of what really happened because they see the same period of time so differently. So to unwind that, you can go through a process where you're just going to say, well, we did this and you know, why do you act? I mean, like, you, you can't go through and win by relitigating it. My humble suggestion to all parties is um, the different wings of the Democratic Party are not on board with each other. They need to go back to Biden-style thinking and negotiations, say where is the Venn diagram, where this stuff comes over together. And I don't know how Senator, I mean, I have zero idea how, but if I were them, I would just go back and say, we screwed up somehow. We didn't intend to screw up. We didn't intend to personalize this. We want to get back to the spirit of this. We know you want to do the right thing. We want to do the right thing. 
and um, asking him what can get us back on the same page so that we don't have this kind of misunderstanding. It reminds me of wars. It reminds me of the Cuban Missile Crisis, of how important it was to not read each other's worst objectives and worst behaviors and begin looking at how, you know, you read the good artic- uh, note from Khrushchev, not the bad one, and that you get you get into a better place because you're going to redefine what happened or just close it, you know, put it in a you know, famous Al Gore lockbox and just say, we're going to do this. Let's push reset. Let's come over. Let's all be mature and concerned about our people. Here are our differences. Here are and our the, similarities. But in the meantime... And where can you... Comp- and I think that I would do that with him. But in the meantime, they immediately moved on to changing the rules of the Senate to pass filibuster reform <coughs> To pass yeah, the that job. would not have been it's something I would advise. <laughs> so they move, they move on. From- I wrote a piece. I said, you know, guess what? The math has not changed. The math is exactly the same. But if anything, the pressure campaign and the rhetoric against Manchin and Cinema is more extreme in January when in in the run up to MLK Day votes on on a rules change to carve out an exception to the filibuster for the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and the Freedom to Vote Act. The rhetoric in Biden's speech in Georgia on Tuesday and what Schumer has been saying in the run up to this vote, the way it has targeted Manchin is even more um, apocalyptic. Yes. Right. And that's happening today. That's happening today as we sit here and speak. Joe Manchin. He knows his company coming. I mean, you asked me. Biden is going as as we're sitting here speaking. Biden is on his way up to the hill to talk to the caucus and bench, uh, basically to point to Manchin and Cinema and say, don't be on the side of, as he, as he said in, in Atlanta, you know, Bull Connor and George Wallace be on the side of, you know, the great civil rights heroes. How does someone like Manchin he is interpret that kind of thing? Offended, but I don't think he's... You had dinner with him last night. He's I mean, not, he's not thinking about it. Well, I think you're going to see... A guy who's informed about every corner of the filibuster, things that Senator Byrd has said about the filibuster, things that have talked about the character and dimension of the Senate and how the norms and functions and behavior of an institution are only tested in times of stress, not times of, you know, when things are hunky dory. And that in that time of stress, you're going to see a lot of quotes from the past from people who've talked about this exact thing that I think are going to be, um, you know, uh, compelling to a certain audience. And I think that's what Joe Manchin is most likely going to do, is to remind people of other times in history when um, the differences between the Senate as a check and balance on passions of the moment, on the House um, and whatnot are gonna be there. And a lot of the left are not gonna buy it, but a lot of reasonable independents and others are. Is this this pressure campaign from Schumer and Biden on voting rights, is it backfiring or is it, is, is it hardening his position, you think? or I think Joe Manchin is completely in favor of reforming the electoral certification process and reforming key elements of the Voting Rights Act. Yeah. He, I think I wish that then in some ways this equation would have been easier if the Voting Rights Act were somewhat closer to what Stacey Abrams and he put together than apparently what has come out of the Rules Committee. But I think that he's very committed to understanding that the issue where I can't, I have my doubts is I don't think he is going to yield on the carve out for the filibuster, but I could be wrong. I mean, the pressure, not from Chuck Schumer, but the pressure from the president 
could could get him there, but you know, not negative pressure. pressure. But I got to tell you, I'm pretty sure without knowing all the details that the president of the United States and the senator from West Virginia had a no holds barred set of discussions where Joe Manchin did not just acquiesce. I mean, he's just not not there on the, and so the power on of the, the filibuster carve out on, on their rights circumstances. And I think it's important for people to remember that Joe Manchin, given where he's from and given the fact that I told people, you know, early on, I said, look, the more you protest Senator Manchin, the more his numbers are going up in West Virginia. Right. So the domestic dimension of whatever. Now, he's not doing what he's doing for those numbers that go up. But the whole notion of figuring out you're going to clobber Joe Manchin or force him into something, you're not the only way Joe Manchin needs to be seduced by logic magnanimity, odd bedfellows, creative thinking. Here's what we can do. Here's what I can do. He's a deal maker. And and the interesting thing is Joe Biden is, too. Some people think that, you know, in terms of understanding, uh, you know, the code of mansion that 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 I'm too close to it. I don't know. But I kind of try to look at it objectively and just sort of say, well, here is this kind of person. Here are these kind of officials. Here is this kind of, you know, set of concerns. How do you get to a win? Right. What what you do to get to a win? And I think to get to a win, you're going to have to compromise. He believes in compromise. You're not going to get everything you want. So carve out some of the stuff and build back better on the um, carve out on the filibuster. He strongly believes that there is a version of the Voting Rights Act that 10 Republicans will join. Um, I do think when I see Manchin uh, out and about, it's, it does seem like to a certain extent he's enjoyed this last year of being in the spotlight. We talked about this sort he's of downside. Governor. Every governor yeah. enjoys it, like being, donations have gone through. The, you know, yeah. he's got donations coming. I don't, from yeah, all I don't know anything about his donation side, but he's I do meeting know, a lot of new people yeah. and making a lot of new friends. I used to interview before anyone was thinking about Joe Manchin. Yeah, yeah. I was interviewing Joe Manchin way back before in before he days. was cool. Before he was cool, we did this kind of pop up thing once when I was at the Atlantic at Pete's Coffee Shop near the White House. I got a, you know, bet, you know, a lot of the White House types coming over, but I interviewed Joe Manchin and John Hoven, Senator Hoven. They were both governors, right? They, and nobody really think about John Hoven much, you know, unless you're like in Fargo, and <laughs> and, and one talk energy or you know fracking. But but John Hoven's really really interesting, and the whole thing about governors and how they bring governor skill sets to the Senate and what the opportunities and their frustrations are is a totally cool interview to do. I think you know, and I explained to the Washington Post recently that Joe Manchin, before the last election, was sort of I wouldn't say languishing, but your ability to impact politics and policy like a chief executive wants to. Now, I don't think he sees himself as the alternative chief executive of the White House. He's not arrogant. He's respectful of Joe Biden, but he's operating like an executive. That's board, really interesting. Not like a passive. Le- the legislative the process always is essentially yeah. passive. Yeah, it's a passive process. It's log rolling. It's kind of going on. Joe Manchin is behaving like an executive and it's a different way than it. And, and I haven't seen really John Hoven. You know, so that is part of the game. And John Hoven I have a lot of respect for also has it in him he demonstrates it less but it's kind of the way he looks at the world he may be more frustrated than mansion because mansion is living this out right now but when you want to understand mansion and what he's going to do think about what a governor would do think about what a ceo would do he's doing that he's seizing this opportunity it's a different of a 50, thing senate let's say what kirsten gillibrand see how she operates or how barack obama you said it's a different it's a different set of behaviors. You know, but let me just make sure I got this right. Most senators complain that if governors should go to being senators, complain about, you know, it's too slow. They never yeah. get anything done. So what you're saying is he's seizing this opportunity of a 50-50 Senate mm-hmm. to make himself 
more like a governor who can make decisions and implement policies and affect policies uh, in a, a more straightforward way. I would not be comfortable with the word seizing. I would be comfortable with the fact that he looks at Joe Biden as someone he respects and likes. Yeah. He said there are clear divisions in the party between the Bernie Sanders crowd and where he's at. I think he sees a, a White House that beat that wing of the party and then forgot it beat it and sort of got captured a lot by the the preferences of the progressive wing and a White House that tilted more than he was comfortable with in that direction rather than in between them and sort of seized him. So I wouldn't say he seized it, but he then began to see what he was standing up for as being the patriotic thing to do for the nation. Now, a lot of people would dispute how I'm characterizing it, but I'm telling you, I think that's how he's, he sees himself as a devout patriot concerned about his constituents and the nation and not wanting to see changes made now. And I believe, you know, and I also believe that things on the carve out of the filibuster and a slippery slope in the filibuster, in his mind, if we did that, then Donald Trump wins. Because Trump that, wanted to that do Donald that. Trump put more pressure on the institutions of government than any president in, in our history, perhaps, but at least modern history. And that in the, the pressure that uh, Trump came about, that if we begin undoing the rules that made it distinctive, even if you have to get a correction for what Trump did, like on voting rights or something of that sort, that breaking down those institutions assures Trump Trump's win. You know, in that. And I think he is there. I don't think that's an argument that many people have made, you know, so. So, Steve, we've like known each other a long time, but I still don't really know how the hell you became one of the most important Washington operators. And I don't use that term pejoratively. How did you get into this world of politics? Well, look, I, I, I kind of stumbled into it. I wouldn't consider myself one of the most important Washington operators. An operator, maybe, you know, because I sort of like to work a room. And, you know, you read those Ron Chernow books and George Washington, all this. And he loved a good cocktail party or beer bash. And that's where politics happens. But I think that that the way I got into it is, look, I was an Air Force brat. I grew up on military bases you around the Japan world. For a bit in Japan of, yeah. and England and Alaska and around the country. And so when you ask this question of how I got into this stuff, it was because I had lived in Japan for high school. I came to America, was sort of a new American. And this was, you know, the 1980s, early 1980s. And so you could feel, you know, if you wanted to be a foreign policy guy, which I thought I did, back then, to remind all the young people listening to this, back then, if you wanted to be big, you had to know about what was called the Soviet Union. Now, we may be getting the Soviet Union back again in the future, but, but you know, that's another topic, Russia, Ukraine, and what that's all about. But in the old days, you had to really know about the Soviets. But I had been to J Japan, and I spoke, you know, kind of broken pidgin Japanese, um, and I... I also sort of felt like their economy was becoming more and more important in the world. And you could sort of feel the shift between a foreign policy of Henry Kissinger and, you know, how big somebody's uh, nuclear arsenal was and what the throw weight was as becoming diminishing factors in the power of a nation. And you felt Japan, even in the early 1980s, 84, 85, 86, saw its economy booming and you saw you know, Japanese investment beginning to move abroad. And I got involved in that. And I began hosting events with, you know, Japanese prime ministers or, you know, people like Jim Fallows, who was my, later my colleague at The Atlantic, Clyde Prestowitz. I was in this kind of world in Los Angeles that was unbelievable. And because of the rise of the Japanese 
uh, businesses and investment in nonprofits and a lot of the issues that were going on in LA about race and economic divides, they were called on to be part of that. The Japan America Society you know, went from being this little boutique, little Japan culture club to one of the most important public affairs organizations in, in California. Then I get a call from the Nixon Library. Yeah. In the middle of this, Bill Clinton wins an election. Richard Nixon's a very creative guy. Yeltsin's government in the former Soviet Union, now Russia, is melting down. And uh, Bill Clinton calls Richard Nixon and said, what can you do to help me on Russia? And so it was part of Nixon's rehabilitation. Clinton helped call. it. He was really the first post-Nixon president to help rehabilitate him in a lot of ways. Reagan and Bush didn't want anything to do with him. No, that's them. right. They didn't want to do it. And so, so Clinton did this. And then I was called by the Nixon Library to say, President Nixon would like to meet you in Washington. So I flew here. And they had all decided that for various reasons, the United States could not do the kinds of things at that moment that Russia needed, big international financial instruments. So they decided Japan should do it. But Japan was still technically at war with the Russians from World War II. Nixon decided Japan was the right way to go. And he carried a letter from Bill Clinton to Japan on a trip that I organized, and I organized the meetings, and I told Nixon, the prime minister is always the weakest guy. You got to meet the strongest guy who's usually in the shadows, and it was huh. that guy, guy named Ichido Ozawa. And Nixon was really, really difficult about meeting him, and I just said, President Nixon, you will fail if you don't meet this Because he didn't think he was important enough. Didn't think he was important enough. So anyway, he did meet Ozawa, and they did succeed. And they got the Japanese, in this middle of time, to give a modest financial instrument of support to the Russians. And it helped stabilize Russia and Yeltsin at that moment. Well, that, what's so interesting about this for in these early episodes that I, I haven't heard these stories is, so you kind of um, very quickly... Um, learned a set of skills that put you at the cross-section of like policy and um, social <laughs> events. And, and yeah. what did you learn early on about this sort of, uh, you know, because you didn't, you decided not to be a policy wonk and sit in your office all day and write no. papers, but you were, you were heavily um, uh, interested in doing a lot of policy stuff. But you kind of you, you connected this, you know, this sort of like political policy, social worlds to uh, policy. Like, what did you go in, in those early years? What did you learn about how to do that or what, why that's important? Because I realize that policy and politics are a function of. And social, what's the name social. for someone who does that? Like, what do you, when, you, when you think I mean, about like yeah. what you do, <laughs> what is it? What is it? I don't know how to name it. Um, I mean, it, uh, be, being called an operator doesn't do it because it makes no, it sound like you're not committed to anything, right? So, right, right, right. And right. I am really interested in good public policy. I mean, I do, but I'm also committed. How do I put this to? Um, this, this I learned early on that getting people together of different view and perspective or party, although I keep telling everybody that differences today are not between parties, they're within them. Yeah. And you can get a Republican and Democrat together and they agree on everything. And that's not really the yeah. defining the differences. But I think that, that the the truth is that when you engage people socially, so convening, I convene. Right. You know, some That's people the call it right. obnoxiously the an impresario. I mean, I remember when go. I was a impresario rather than operator. When I was a kid in, <laughs> well, in LA, we're fix that in post. And I lived across from, I lived on Horn Avenue in West Hollywood um, for a long time, and um, that was where the original Spago restaurant was. So Wolfgang Puck was over there. I used to see him all the time. His herbs were grown along my little sidewalk thing. <laughs> and, and, uh, but there was a great 
I think, Los Angeles Magazine cover story on the most powerful person in Los Angeles was the maitre d' at Spago. And I basically said, oh, that's what I want to be. I want to be the maitre d' of DC. Because the maitre d' of Spago controlled power, right? They controlled where Madonna sat or Tom Cruise or who came in. Swifty Lazar had a party. And So I you're sitting in your apartment watching this and being like, I yeah. want to be that guy. I don't think there was a model for it. And what I realized when I was, I was kind of like, you know, partly an opinion guy, you know, as a policy guy, worked at a allegedly a think tank like the center. Then I went to work in the Senate and I told Jeff Bingham and I said, you know what? The power is convening people. And so in the Senate, I began having these super conferences in big hearing rooms. So I began changing how a Senate office saw how it communicated how it developed policy, the policy experts it would bring in. And our stuff was By so exciting. By throwing events that people wanted to go to. Yeah, and it was so exciting. So that kind of got in the, the mix when you say, how does the social, the convening, I've done it in every job I've had, right? So it's the same deal, whether I'm at The Hill, The Atlantic, New America Foundation, or in the Senate or with Nixon, I've always felt like you never lose by convening people and also by bringing in and making sure you bring in the people who don't agree with you. That's the real hallmark of what Nick, I do. Nixon was famously homophobic. Yeah. Um, were you a lot of gay people working around him, though. Really? Yeah, most gay people. You find this. What was it like? So tell us about that. Were I you, never were, really told were you always out, Richard Nixon, were you out? hey, I'm... Uh, no, I was not. Um, but that said, he had a right-hand guy named Sandy Quinn um, who knew everything about me and his story. And Sandy Quinn had been like the longest, next to John Taylor, who also knew the other. It's just not a discussion point you were going to bring up with Nixon. But I'm, I'm sure that once he, if he did get to know, he liked the skill set I brought. Was the Nixon of the, of the tapes the sort of anti-Semitic, racist, homophobic Nixon in, in the worst moments of the, of the Watergate tapes? Was that Nixon present in sort of day-to-day -day encounters with him? No. Or that was, a, a, that no, was only Nixon, to people? He didn't show that side. I didn't see. Yeah. I sometimes saw a little bit of the grumpy yeah. Nixon. Yeah. You know, grumpy Nixon. Yeah. But um, I saw Nixon at his best. You have to remember, I was interested. You respected was, him. I did respect him. I respected him very, very much in his foreign policy and national security views. I listened to him and watch him give speeches, long speeches that he had fully memorized, not a single note in front of a large audience in which he did this. And I hosted with Dimitri, of course, at the Nixon Center, his last public speech that was at Jackson Place. We used the presidential, um, uh, former, the place for former presidents, which is over on Jackson Place in front of the White House. And, you know, Tim Russett was there and, um, you know, Jim Fallows and other folks that, that we had brought together. And Nixon gave a brilliant, not only summary of what he thought, saw, you know, the, the moment in global affairs and the challenges for America at that moment, but also really had a kind of great sense of where things were going. And if you go back to what Nixon said, it was just so. So, yeah, I had on that front a lot of respect for Nixon. Um, I also had a respect for his shrewd wily understanding of how to use power because you saw him do it you know marvin cal wrote this book called the nixon memo on how he framed uh george hw bush on a russia front to get bush to do something he really didn't want to do. just through the use the of great, a sophisticated memo just the way he, yeah the sophisticated memo and setting him up around these kinds of things nixon continued to be engaged in a player and i think he did the same thing up until the end with Bill Clinton. And then you saw Bill Clinton learn from it because Bill Clinton at that time was trying 
in many ways to define himself differently than Democrats who would, were, were being delivered, which he wanted to, he wanted to grab that ring of realism, foreign policy realism. The world was changing. We had to make hard, yeah. you know, hard choices in the world. And that meant you couldn't chase every rabbit. You couldn't be for every cause. There were, you know, you were going to redo the defense budget. So you had to kind of define down what you were going to be about. And so a Nixonian uh, tough choice scaffolding over foreign policy was very useful at that time. Um, and I think to be the Forrest Gump of that situation and on the edge of it was a very interesting thing to be. So, yeah, he was yeah. shrewd and interesting. And, you know, I always tell people, but it was very effective for me because, you know, my, my politics are pretty centrist, pragmatic. You know, people you know, usually say, well, that means you, have, you don't care about anything. That's not true. I do care about what works. But to have come into this town working not for Republicans because I kept it bipartisan, but to but with with a place that had a Republican tilt, and then to go work for a Senate Democrat and to get both sides. I got to know Tom Daschle very well, got to know the Clinton crowd very well, um, and then to use both of those and to kind of remind people that I'm on neither side of the aisle. I've always been a registered independent, never joined either uh, party, and so in that kind of to maintain that, and then the then the kind of motif of the. New America Foundation, which Michael Lind really came up with, with, with the late Ted Halstead, was, you know, the politics of the radical center, you know. So yeah. I've always been it's in that all space. all very out of fashion yeah. right now. Yeah. Thanks for doing this, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Steve. All right, take care, man. I'll see you in February. Thank you so much. <laughs> Wait, what's the secret event? I'll tell you later. Bye. <laughs> And that's our show. Our producers are Cara Tabor and Carlos Prieto. Jenny Amant is our senior producer. Mike Zappler is Playbook's daily newsletter editor. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. If you like what you hear, subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you listen. I'm Ryan Lizza. Thanks for listening. You are, this is a little Forrest Gump-like. Is, is it was Forrest Gump-like. Gump I was there, yeah. But these are like characters out of yesteryear, right? You know, I mean, I mean the fact that, I mean, nobody knows I used to hang out with Michael Crichton all the time. I, I used to hang, I mean, I mean, there are stories I know about Hollywood and Michael Crichton that are really fascinating. And, you know, to be a U.S.-Japan guy and cited in that book, like I was, I'm cited in that book. It was almost the end of my career. And was in the movie at that time. So I got kind of in the Hollywood. Who's in the movie? You are? I am. I'm the talk show host in like Wait, six in seconds the, in the film. The film version of Michael Crichton's famous book. I'm in it, yeah. You're in it. Senator, are you comfortable with this new position? Absolutely. I'm in it, yeah. You're in it. Yeah, and I'm asking the guy who played the senator. You know, Ray Wise is playing a U.S. senator who changed his vote in the Senate on something. I go, I'm on the, literally for a second. I go, Senator, why'd you change your vote? Because I don't view it as a new position. I, I, I view it as a modification. That's exactly what it is, a modification.